We can open our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter. We're going to start to dig back into 1 Peter. We've been working through that for several weeks now. I think we're on week five. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Just as you're doing that, I'd like to thank everybody that was uh, participated in the 24 hours of prayer uh, that we did last weekend. Uh, I was really super encouraged that a lot of you were encouraged uh, through the booklet that Tamil uh, produced with the Lord's Prayer and so on. And there's just something about it when the church decides to pray. Ironically, it's rare, but I'm hoping that things like this become a lot less rare, that we won't have to sign up for things, but that we will uh, learn to live what Paul actually says is to pray without ceasing, to be praying always to have God at the forefront of your mind. So thank you for participating in that. We've got a big year ahead of us as a church, a lot of, a lot of big decisions to make, and uh, the Lord has really blessed us in so many ways. So I'm assuming you are open to First Peter. Steve fails miserably at a Bible drill. <laughs> All right. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the meditation of Jesus Christ, or mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you're not like that, for you are a chosen people. There's that identity stuff again. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Now, over the past several weeks, Peter has taken us on a journey of exploring our true identities in what scripture, and specifically the Apostle Paul, but Peter uses this language too, of being in Christ. Have you ever noticed Christianity is the only thing that uses that phrase? Like no one is in Buddha. No one is in Hindu, right? In Christ is a very Christianese phrase that means a lot about our true identity, and he's been encouraging his readers to learn who they are in Christ. He touched on his, uh, the experience that we have of, of a new birth and how the scriptures call us to respond as disciples, to grow in our relationship with 
Jesus. Growth is not an option. And so far, Peter's pressed into individual moral transformation based on this identity that we have in Jesus. We're his children. We've been invited into God's family, and the Father calls us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed into the likeness of the Son. And this transformation is driven by our identity in Christ. It's both individual and communal in nature. And we have a shift that's now happening in the text where he's been dealing with our individual identities in Christ, but now he is shifting into our communal identity, the ident- our identity as the body of Christ. And so he presses into that this morning. I titled this message, God's Building Program. And I, and I did that for a reason. Because in this passage, Peter uses the imagery of the temple. He uses the process of building to show us how our identity, what our identity is, and how it functions as the body of Christ. Now, I don't know how many people here are builders. Does anybody here build houses for a living or, or is a builder of some sort? There's a few people here. Yeah, you're builders. Um, So you might kind of understand some of the structure of what Peter is talking about. But anytime that you build something, there has to be four critical pieces. Of course, there's the builder. Like, not much gets built if you don't have a builder. And then there's the blueprints, the things that the builder uses to know how to go about building the house. And then one of the most important things, the beginning of the building process, after you've got a builder, you've got blueprints, is to lay the foundation. And then the final product is actually the building itself. Now, essentially, this is exactly how Peter structures today's kind of confusing passage. Now, as we walk through the passage today, I want you to keep in mind that Peter is using the imagery of the temple. He has the temple in mind, and the temple is a big deal to the Jews. The temple to the Jews is the house in which God dwells. It's where his presence is. It's where the priests do their sacrifices on the people's behalf. The temple is the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. And so he's using this temple imagery Uh, for us to understand who we actually are collectively in Christ. Now, in order to do this, he starts with the most important piece of any building. And he calls that piece the cornerstone. He tells us that we have to come to Christ. He says, we come to him, the living cornerstone. And in that time that Peter's writing this, we got to understand something. When they built things, they didn't have like Rona show up with a lumber truck. You know, they didn't have drywall coming in. They didn't have electrical wiring coming in. The trades were very different in Peter's time compared to now. They didn't have lumber and all of these different things to build structures. What they had was rock. Now, anybody that's a builder goes, oh, (laughs) that's rock. I have to take rock and form it into a building. 
Now, the temple that Peter is thinking of is one of the largest, if not the largest structure in its time. And it's an amazing structure that was built completely out of rocks and stones. And in order to build a stone structure, after you lay the basic foundation, the next critical step is to place the cornerstone in the perfect position. Now, the cornerstone of the temple was massive, like absolutely massive, like over 50 feet long, a rock over 50 feet long. It was placed in the corner as the foundation. Now, it's the most important stone to be put into place for several reasons. Structurally, it holds a lot of weight, but more importantly, it's the guiding rock that sets the stage for the entire building. You see, folks, if you get the cornerstone wrong, the building will end up wrong. Everything about the building will be wrong, will be structurally unsound, it'll be crooked, it won't be plumb, it won't be square, whatever builders say. Now, structurally, it holds a lot of weight, but it guides how you build the actual building. The cornerstone is used as the reference point for the entire building. As you build with more stone, the cornerstone is the stone that dictates the lines of the building. It tells you where to place the next stone. So if you were building a house and you hired me, which I highly do not recommend, and you asked me to come in and I began to brick your house. We'll just try to put it into our terms. And I placed the brick on like a weird angle like this. Like you want your brick in straight lines, right? like regular brick, I'm not talking about the fancy stone on the front, like square brick, rectangular brick, you would probably like the mortar line to go across like this. But if I place it on an angle, how, now we're gonna go up the house like this. That's the cornerstone. It's gonna guide absolutely everything. It, it's the key piece of the building. It dictates its structural integrity and the continuity of the building. And so it's interesting because Peter says that Jesus is the living cornerstone. Now, this is a huge statement given, uh, giving us insight into how important Jesus actually is to our identity. First, I want you to notice something. That we come to Christ, it says. That we come to Christ. This is a moving statement. We don't wait for Christ. We come to him. Now, the one in whom we come to, he says, is living. He's not dead like a stone or like a rock. He's a living rock, a living cornerstone. He's alive like a person. And he says, Jesus is our living rock, which sets the stage for how we are to be built. He's our cornerstone, the one who guides the process and holds the weight of it all. He's our foundation, and Peter's emphasizing this for a reason. Jesus, I want you to hear this. I hear this all the time, that Jesus is my example. I'm striving to be that example. Jesus was a great person. He was my example for living. This passage would actually tell you that that's poo-poo. 
Jesus is not just your example. He's more than your example. He is our foundation. He is the one who brings continuity to our lives as we are being built by the builder. If the cornerstone's wrong, the building will be built poorly. So don't just think of Jesus as merely your moral example. He's so much more. You see, according to Peter, he is our foundation. He is the source of our salvation. He doesn't just make this concept up. Peter's actually quoting Old Testament prophecy in this imagery. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, it says, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundational stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. The cornerstone, folks, is what our lives in Christ are built on. And in Isaiah, he says that this stone is precious and safe to build on so we can find comfort in being built up on the cornerstone of Christ. You see, this imagery leads Peter into explaining who we are in the process. In this passage, folks, listen to what he says in verse five. And you, that would be us, that would actually be more specifically the church. Peter's writing this assuming that you're a believer. He's writing to believers. And so when he says you, he's not writing to people who don't believe. He's writing to Christians. And he says, you, Christians, the Christian church, are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So to Peter, we come to Jesus and we become like Jesus. We come to Jesus and we become like Jesus. We become a living stone. We are the building that God is constructing. We're the spiritual temple, he says, the living stone that the Father builds from the cornerstone, Jesus. Now the spiritual temple, folks, is built stone by stone. There's no such thing as just one stone and the building is complete. This is communal language. He builds a building stone by stone and there's many stones added to it every day as the building progresses. God's building his kingdom here on earth through the church. And he's building up what Peter calls his spiritual temple. So in the spirit of using temple imagery, Peter continues this. He says, the people who work for the temple are the priests. So God is building up his temple, which is us. But there is people who work in the temple, people who serve in the temple, and they are the priests. How many people knew you were a priest? We should probably all wear robes and not get married. Where was I? <laughs> All right. 
There's a reason that he uses this language, this uh, example, this role of a priest is actually important. He's giving us pieces of what the identity of the church actually is. The reason for that, folks, is priests offer sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. And the temple is where God dwells, and the priests are the only ones allowed in God's presence in order to present the living sacrifices. Now, a lot of people read that we are kingdom of priests, meaning we no longer need preachers, pastors, things like that. That's, that's not what it's saying actually at all, because then you would be saying, Paul, you're wrong, because Paul says that you need pastors as a gift to the church. So what does being a kingdom of priests actually mean? It's super interesting that he uses this and, and that we're this temple, this place where God dwells and we function as holy priests. Listen to what he says in verse nine, but you are not like that. We'll get into what he means by that in a second. For you are chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Now, Peter's concept here would have been mind-blowing to the average person that would have been reading this. He's saying that we no longer go to the temple. We are the temple. That we no longer go to the priest for him to act on our behalf because we are the priest. But by being a priest, it comes with responsibilities. And so it's a loaded statement when he says that you're a priest. You see, a priest has a responsibility, two main responsibilities, to be holy and set apart. That's what holy means, holiness, set apart, and to make sacrifices. To make sacrifices. See, a lot of people, I'm a priest. I get to go directly to God. Yes, but that comes with these responsibilities, to be set apart and to live a sacrificial life offering sacrifices to God. Holiness, Peter's already dealt with in chapter one. In this chapter, he's specifically dealing with this concept of sacrifices, that as holy priests, as the temple, we make these sacrifices to God. And so I went through scripture, and I found there's a lot of them, but I found I think it's four that I think are the most dominant in scripture. What sacrifices are we called to make as holy priests living with the Holy Spirit in us as the temple of God? We are to sacrifice first our bodies. That's a massive statement in Romans 12 verse one. It says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind we find that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So we are, as priests, called to give up our bodies. This means that as priests, we give up our whole self as a living sacrifice to God. Not just pieces, not just a little. I'll give you this moment today, Jesus, because I'm a busy person. Giving your whole body, your whole self to God is your call as a priest. And it's a sacrifice. Do you know what sacrifice means? You're probably not going to like doing it. 
See, Scripture's awesome that way. God does all these amazing things for us, but he says, you're going to need to make some sacrifices in order to be who I called you to be. It's not this magical thing that just happens because I prayed a prayer and I sit in a pew and I write a check occasionally and I vote and give my opinion. A priest is called to sacrifice their whole self every waking moment of their life. And then we're to give praise as a sacrifice. Scripture talks about praise being sacrificial in nature. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, he says, Therefore, let us offer Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. Offering sacrificial praise to God is part of the priestly role we play as God's temple. And we're to sacrifice by doing good works. Hebrews 13, 16 says, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Do you notice the sacrifices are not always about you? They're often about you sacrificing your whole self for the sake of others. You see, Scripture is always pushing us outside of selfishness and into a life of caring for others. This is part of what a priest does, sacrifices self for others through good works. And the fourth one you're really going to love, and it was actually one of the most dominant ones in Scripture, were to sacrifice our money. We're to sacrifice our money. In Philippians 4.18 Paul has been given a gift by the church in Philippi. And this is his response. He says, at the moment I have all that I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. Now listen to what he says that that gift is. A sweet smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Scripture calls us as priests to be not focused on financial gain, but to sacrifice our finances for the good of others. Paul says this kind of sacrifice is sweet-smelling and acceptable to God, which would insinuate that the hoarding it is not sweet-smelling and acceptable. You see that, right? So we have a spiritual priesthood. So we're a spiritual priesthood, he says, in a spiritual house with spiritual living stones being built together solidly on the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And guess what? This is a mess. Like it's beautiful language that Peter uses where the temple being built by God through the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, where the, the, this living priesthood of the kingdom of priests, holy priests, that's all beautiful language. But in practicality, I don't know if you're with me on this, but that's a disaster. Have you ever been to a building site? It's like muddy. And there's like stuff lying all over the place, right? The, the end product is beautiful, right? But the process of getting there 
is messy. It's messy because as a building, as a builder to build things, we have to disrupt things. For instance, to lay a foundation, you need to dig a hole. You're disrupting the earth. How many people love to be disrupted? See, in order to be built, there's constant disruption or nothing is actually happening. If the builder shows up and sees that the guys or the people, it's 2019, Jeff, 2020, (laughs) that the people are just on coffee break the whole time and nothing has happened, nothing's been disrupted, is the builder like, yes, this is profitable. Stay on break. Building something means that there is constant disruption and constant change. And the journey along the way might be a little muddy around the foundation, but the end product is beautiful. It's exactly what you ever dreamt it to be. Faith, folks, is not clean and perfect. It's a building project. It's messy. The process to get there can be difficult. It has its ups and downs. If anybody here is a builder, they know you have good days and you have bad days. But there's something that helps us along the way when it comes to making a build go well. And folks, that's the blueprints. If you're just building blindly, you don't know what to build. You don't know how long to cut that rock or in our case, to cut that two by four. You have to constantly refer back to the blueprints to understand how to build the building. Now we see this in Peter's teachings where he quotes three different times. What are the blueprints? The blueprints is the scriptures, the Old Testament. And he, in this passage alone, quotes three different Old Testament passages, the Isaiah passage that I read earlier, Isaiah 28, 16. And then he quotes Psalm 118, 22. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. I'm going to explain that in a minute. In Isaiah 8, 14, he says, he will keep you safe, but to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble. Interesting. A stone that makes them fall, and for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. You see, the blueprints is based on Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. The stone that the people, hear that, the stone that the people, the human beings, the religious ones, thought was the wrong building product, but yet he became the perfect foundation. And Peter shows us that God is not just building haphazardly. He's not just winging it. God is building from perfect blueprints that he gave us in the Old Testament. And so this leads us to the final piece of Peter's imagery, and that is the builders. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. Did you notice that there are two different builders in this text? There are two different builders that he talks about. He says there are false builders and there are the real builder. The wannabe builders or the one who is actually qualified. 
You you ever done that where you're hiring a contractor and you have one who's actually qualified and able to do it and you have another who just claims to be able to do it but can't actually produce? That's the way that this passage is actually written. He's showing us two different types of builders. In 1 Peter, let's go all the way back to the very first verse, chapter 2, verse 4 that we started with. He says, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple Now listen to what he says. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. The cornerstone was chosen by God, the real builder, but the people who claimed to be the builders, the religious ones, rejected that cornerstone. Listen to what else Peter says in verse 8. And he says, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Folks, in the context of this passage, he is talking about a specific group of Jewish people called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, they were the the board. They were the elected ones. They were the members. They were, the, they were the, the, the politicians. They were the ones who made sure that the Jewish religion moved forward properly. They watched over the religious practices of the temple. They watched over what was happening in their religious system. They were the ones who watched over the religion of the Jews. And they rejected Jesus based on their religious values saying that he was not qualified to be the cornerstone. Do you see the difference? You can be built, spiritual temple, by the builder who's qualified, God, or you can be built by the people, the world, and the worldly systems that surround it. This is what's happening in the text. They're being rejected by the people around them and they're being told to blend in. And Peter's saying, no, that's who rejected the cornerstone. And they rejected it based on religion, folks. They quoted scripture. They did all kinds of amazing religious things that caused them to say, we reject Jesus. And people still do this. They reject Jesus as their cornerstone because because they choose to build their lives on something else. And this happens even in the church. When we start to build our life around our status in the church and our opinion being heard instead of God's will being done. You see, we have to be really careful of who we are allowing to build the temple. And as priests, we have to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice on a regular basis in order to submit to the building up of the body. The church's identity and calling is to be built up and called out, separated from the world, but sent back into the world where we don't conform to the image of the world, we're built by God. 
But as God's dwelling place called to be holy and make sacrifice, Peter knows that our identity is different. Listen to what he says in verse 10. Once you had no identity as people. That's interesting. How many people thought like since you've been born, basically, you've been developing your identity? Right? You're born with an identity, aren't you? Peter would say you're not. Once you had no identity as a people, collectively, now you're God's people. You need to understand he's making an extreme distinction here that matters so much to your faith. Like it it literally dictates where your identity is found will drive how you live your faith. And once you had no identity, but now you have an identity as God's people. Once you received no mercy. So when you had no identity, you also received no mercy. And now you have received God's mercy. It's our identity as the church built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ that gives us our identity as God's people. And this identity as children of God, he says, gives us mercy. It gives us grace. We're different than the world because our cornerstone was built on grace. Remember, it's messy. And our passage today, like it, it, there was so much theological richness to this. I could talk about this passage for the next four days but I had to figure out how to just get this down to a way that you could understand. And so God is in the process of building up his wonderful temple, which is us, the body of Christ, the people of the church. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of the living cornerstone, Jesus, we can now have direct access to the Father. This direct access means that we live a life called out to be different. We don't live a religious life that's, that's full of empty rituals and rules. Unfortunately, that's what we've often done in the church. Especially, I do denominational work. It's a blast. I hate it. Do you know why I hate it? Because we spend all kinds of time talking about graceless things that mean nothing. If we put truth before grace, we will never understand truth. You see, grace is the window to truth. Religion says truth, then we'll sprinkle some grace in. And if you don't meet the group, if you're not part of the club, we'll invite you in because we have to. We're welcoming. We love you. We're the church. But stand at the door. Don't take your shoes off. The rest of us are going to the table. But see, when we live by grace and we're offered that mercy, that grace, and we step through the window of grace, then we find truth. There's a big difference. So we live a life full of grace and mercy and the grace we receive, we give back in return to those who don't know Jesus as their cornerstone. The worship team can join me. Christianity, folks, is a grace-based faith, not a judgment-based religion. Unfortunately, we often turn it into that because it's easier. 
If I just have a list of rules, I follow those rules, I must be okay, but my heart doesn't change. The construction site doesn't move. Nothing is altered. Nothing is disrupted when it comes to religion. But when you walk through the window of grace, everything is disrupted, everything is messy, and it's awesome. So let me ask you this morning, what is your life built on? Is it built on false beliefs and worldly treasures? Or is Jesus Christ the foundation of your life? And don't expect life to be clean and perfect if you are building it in Jesus. Instead, expect it to be messy, yet rewarding, because once the build is complete, it's going to be beautiful.